Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, October 7th, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, breath training can work as well as medicine to reduce high blood pressure. From NPR. And here's what may be happening every time you get COVID. From BuzzFeed News. Plus, the FDA announces a new definition of what's healthy. From the Washington Post. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Daily breath training can work as well as medicine to reduce high blood pressure by Allison Aubrey from NPR. It's well known that weightlifting can strengthen our biceps and quads. Now there's accumulating evidence that strengthening the muscles we use to breathe is beneficial too. New research shows that a daily dose of muscle training for the diaphragm and other breathing muscles helps promote heart health and reduces high blood pressure. The muscles we use to breathe atrophy, just like the rest of our muscles tend to do as we get older, explains researcher Daniel Craighead, an integrative physiologist at the University of Colorado Boulder. To test what happens when these muscles are given a good workout, he and his colleagues recruited healthy volunteers ages 18 to 82 to try a daily five-minute technique using a resistance breathing training device called PowerBreathe. The handheld machine, one of several on the market, looks like an inhaler. When people breathe into it, the device provides resistance, making it harder to inhale. We found that doing 30 breaths per day for six weeks lowers systolic blood pressure by about 9 millimeters of mercury, Craighead says. And those reductions are about what could be expected with conventional aerobic exercise, he says, such as walking, running, or cycling. A normal blood pressure reading is less than about 120 over 80, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. These days, some healthcare professionals diagnose patients with high blood pressure if their average reading is consistently 130 over 80 or higher, the CDC notes. The impact of a sustained 9 millimeter reduction in systolic blood pressure, the first number in the ratio, is significant, says Michael Joyner, a physician at the Mayo Clinic who studies how the nervous system regulates blood pressure. That's the type of reduction you see with a blood pressure drug, Joyner says. Research has shown many common blood pressure medications lead to about a 9 millimeter reduction. The reductions are higher when people combine multiple medications, but a 10 millimeter reduction correlates with a 35% drop in the risk of stroke and a 25% drop in the risk of heart disease. The training helps prevent high blood pressure, too. I think it's promising, Joyner says, about the prospects of integrating strength training for the respiratory muscles into preventive care. It could be beneficial for people who are unable to do traditional aerobic exercise, he says, and the simplicity is appealing, too, given people can easily use the device at home. Taking a deep, resisted breath offers a new and unconventional way to generate the benefits of exercise and physical activity, Joyner concluded in an editorial that was published alongside a prior study in the Journal of the American Heart Association. 
So how exactly does breath training lower blood pressure? Craighead points to the role of endothelial cells, which line our blood vessels and promote the production of nitric oxide, a key compound that protects the heart. Nitric oxide helps widen our blood vessels, promoting good blood flow, which prevents the buildup of plaque in arteries. What we found was that six weeks of IMST, which is inspiratory muscle strength training, will increase endothelial function by about 45%, Craighead explains. Good for all ages and could help athletes' endurance. It has long been known that deep diaphragmatic breathing, often used during meditation or mindfulness practices, can help lower blood pressure too. Muscle training with the PowerBreathe device works in a similar way, engaging the breathing muscles and promoting the production of nitric oxide. The particular helpfulness of the IMST device, Craighead says, is that it requires less time to get the benefit because the small machine adds the resistance that gives the muscles a good workout. His research is funded by the National Institutes of Health. The new study builds on the prior study and adds to the evidence that IMST, which is essentially strength training for the respiratory muscles, is beneficial for adults of all ages. We were surprised to see how ubiquitously effective IMST is at lowering blood pressure, Craighead says. Before the results came in, he'd suspected that young, healthy adults might not benefit as much. But we saw robust effects, he says, pointing to a significant decline in blood pressure for participants of all ages. He says the finding suggests IMST could help healthy young people prevent heart disease and the rise in blood pressure that tends to occur with aging. There may also be benefits for elite cyclists, runners, and other endurance athletes, he says, citing data that six weeks of IMST increased aerobic exercise tolerance by 12% in middle-aged and older adults. So we suspect that IMST, consisting of only 30 breaths per day, would be very helpful in endurance exercise events, Craighead says. It's a technique that athletes could add to their training regimens. Craighead, whose personal marathon best is 2 hours 21 minutes, says he has incorporated IMST as part of his own training. The technique is not intended to replace exercise, he cautions, or to replace medication for people whose blood pressure is so elevated that they're at high risk of having a heart attack or stroke. Instead, Craighead says, it would be a good additive intervention for people who are doing other healthy lifestyle approaches already. This is the way Teresa D. Hernandez, age 61, sees the breathing exercises. She lives in Boulder, has a family history of high blood pressure, and participated in the Colorado research. When the study began, she had blood pressure readings near the threshold at which doctors recommend medications. It was a surprise that something as simple could be so profound in terms of its impact, says Hernandez, of the six weeks of breathing exercises. It took my blood pressure to under the threshold so that I would not need to take medication, she says. Her blood pressure dropped significantly, and she says she plans to stick with it five minutes every day. Up next, here's what may be happening every time you get COVID. Getting hit with a baseball bat once is better than getting hit five times, one expert said. By Katie Camaro from BuzzFeed News. In some ways, the COVID pandemic has felt like the world's longest dodgeball game. 
only a few players remain untouched by the virus that has already killed more than a million people in the U.S. alone and seriously injured or otherwise impacted millions more around the world. Now it's clear the coronavirus is here to stay, which suggests annual rounds of an unpredictable game no one has agreed to play. So our new reality begs the question, what does a life where COVID strikes our immune system over and over again look and feel like? Repeat infections happen all the time with the flu and other respiratory viruses, including the handful of milder coronaviruses known to cause the common cold. These reinfections don't worry doctors or anyone else that much. In fact, studies show you can expect to catch these other coronaviruses at least one to two times a year. But SARS-CoV-2 is unlike any other virus we've seen before. It can affect nearly every organ and system in the body, even months after an infection subsides. And it has a high mutation rate with the potential to produce immunity-evading variants. Put together, its characteristics make it difficult to understand what repeat exposures mean for our bodies in the short and long term. Despite the unknowns, most of the experts we spoke to agreed on one point. Each new infection does carry some risk, and early evidence suggests the negative effects may accumulate over time. You may dodge serious outcomes the first, second, or even third time around, but you might not be as lucky the fourth time, said Dr. Zayad Al-Ali, Chief of Research and Education Service at the Veterans Affairs St. Louis Healthcare System. Every infection is an opportunity for you to develop a problem with the virus. You can't possibly avoid it forever, Alali said. What is the COVID reinfection rate? It was one of the great unknowns early in the pandemic, but we now know that you can get COVID more than once. In fact, there doesn't appear to be any limit on how often you can get it. A person is considered to be reinfected if they test positive again after they first had COVID and recovered including negative tests in between. In a study of COVID-positive people in California and New York, about 4.6% to 6.3% had previously been infected. During the Omicron wave, people ages 19 to 29 living in Iceland had a 15% reinfection rate. The rate was around 12% in those who'd had one shot of the vaccine and 11% in those with two shots, according to a research letter published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in August. While vaccination can reduce the risk of reinfection, severe symptoms, hospitalizations, and death, its effectiveness depends on how well the shot matches the circulating variant. Federal health officials just authorized a new booster that targets the latest BA4 and BA5 Omicron variants and announced that Americans should now get a COVID shot, which will be updated each year alongside their flu vaccine every fall. A previous infection does offer some protection against your next one. One study found that it was associated with an 80% lower risk for subsequent infection. The protection lasted for at least six months. But if a new variant emerges that's significantly different from the last version of the virus, then you may get infected sooner than that. This is what happened during the Omicron wave, which helps explain why some people tested positive a second or third time within a few months' time last winter. Is it bad to get COVID over and over again? 
Any infection, whether it's viral, bacterial, or parasitic, taxes the body to some degree, which can differ drastically from one person to the next. What happens after an exposure depends on your vaccination status, previous infections, immune system, health conditions, and many other factors. A COVID infection, particularly the first one, can drive your body to create protective antibodies and memory cells that help it to more quickly and efficiently defend itself the next time it's exposed to the virus. Vaccination spurs the body to create this protective shield while avoiding dangerous or life-threatening symptoms. We know, too, that this protection wanes over time. But some believe that an infection, no matter how mild or severe, may, for certain people, cause damage that can weaken their ability to fight off illness the next time they contract COVID. At least one study released in June that has yet to be peer-reviewed seems to support that theory. Researchers analyzed more than 5.6 million U.S. veterans' health records and found that repeat COVID infections with a mixture of the Delta and Omicron variants may have a cumulative effect, each positive test bringing greater risks of serious health consequences such as heart, kidney, gastrointestinal, and neurological disorders. These risks, which were present regardless of vaccination status, persisted even six months after reinfection, at which point they entered long COVID territory. The median amount of time between a first and second infection was about two and a half months and about two months passed between the second and third infection. The results were adjusted for demographic and health characteristics. Put simply, getting hit with a baseball bat once is better than getting hit five times, said Al-Ali, who is the lead author of the study. This phenomenon is also common following reinfections with dengue fever, a mosquito-borne illness that occurs in tropical regions, Al-Ali told BuzzFeed News, in which any subsequent infection increases the risks of developing severe sickness. It's an idea called the multiple-hit hypothesis, according to Aaron Sanders, a clinical scientist studying long COVID and Lyme disease at MIT. For a number of environmental exposures, genetic predispositions, and stressors that you encounter, it may lead to somebody being more prone to infection or severe illness, and that's something that I very much think is going to be at play with all of this, Sanders said. Not all experts think reinfections can cause cumulative damage. Dr. Shira Doran, an infectious disease physician and hospital epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center, recommended that people take Al-Ali's findings with a grain of salt. Because the study only included veterans who tend to have more underlying health problems than the general public, Doran doubts the results are generalizable to everyone else. We know that over any period of time, and certainly over the period between one infection and another, chronic underlying conditions can get worse. That's the natural course, Doran said. I don't want people to think that the norm is to have chronic disease as a result of the first infection and then worsening chronic disease as a result of each next one, Doran said. Some of Doran's skepticism is based on research that shows adults and children experience similar or less severe symptoms during their second COVID infection compared with their first, and that the risk of reinfection decreases over time. Gerardo Chowell, an epidemiology and biostatistics professor at the Georgia State University School of Public Health, isn't surprised that coronavirus reinfections may cause mounting damage to your body 
although he said this may not be true for everyone. Even before the pandemic, Chawel said, Americans' overall baseline health had been declining, which can make people more vulnerable to infections of all kinds. People with weakened immune systems will have a harder time recovering from the virus, and that's the most significant issue here, said Chawel, adding that he's hopeful SARS-CoV-2 will eventually become milder. Evolutionarily speaking, viruses don't benefit from killing people. Doing so ruins their chance of surviving and spreading in the population. This doesn't mean it won't be able to kill people. It definitely will, but perhaps not on the level that we saw during the first two years of circulation, Chawel said. How could repeat infections affect the body? How and why repeat exposures might affect the body remains largely unknown. The theories that do exist mirror those for long COVID. One explanation is that an initial infection may cause serious injury somewhere in the body that may be unnoticeable at first until a subsequent infection pushes them over the edge. Al Ali said, "This may be especially true for people who may not know they have a medical condition like kidney damage or a heart problem." Another possibility is that coronavirus particles are able to remain hidden in different parts of the body, like the brain, gut, eyes, and heart, silently causing damage that accumulates with each infection. There's also the theory that COVID triggers an autoimmune response that kicks a person's immune system into overdrive, bringing about widespread inflammation that can cause symptoms like fatigue, brain fog, muscle aches, and more. The problem, Doran of Tufts said, is that many of these speculations have little scientific backing. All of the things that have been on the list as potential causes haven't reliably been found in all of the people that have been studied, and so it just makes it really, really hard to know. Doran said, "Can vaccination reduce the risks from reinfections?" There is at least some indication that vaccination can lower the risk of developing post-COVID symptoms. A review of 15 studies found that people who received two doses of a COVID vaccine were about half as likely to develop long COVID symptoms that persisted for over a month. This effect was stronger in those older than 60 and lowest among 19 to 35-year-olds. The findings are promising, given nearly one in five adults in the U.S. who have had COVID are experiencing long COVID, according to the CDC. How someone responds to COVID or vaccination depends on a myriad of factors, including their health status and general lifestyle habits, as well as the circulating variant at the time and the societal preventive measures in place, like mask requirements. For now, the best way to avoid poor outcomes following each infection is to avoid infection altogether. Get vaccinated and seek treatment like Paxlovid as early into your bout with the virus as possible, if eligible. Every time you get infected, you're rolling the dice for a good or bad outcome. So as you continue to play that game, you again increase your risks," says Sanders of MIT. One of the biggest things that anyone can do right now is to protect yourself from getting infected again. And even if you aren't able to fully prevent infection, there's something to be said for reducing the amount of virus and the dose of virus that you're exposed to. Sanders said. Up next, the FDA announces a new definition of what's healthy, but what's good for you is a fraught topic, and the federal government has a spotty record on the subject. By Laura Riley from the Washington Post. 
The Food and Drug Administration has announced new rules for nutrition labels that can go on the front of food packages to indicate that they are healthy. Under the proposal, manufacturers can label their products healthy if they contain a meaningful amount of food from at least one of the food groups or subgroups, such as fruit, vegetable, or dairy, recommended by the dietary guidelines. They must also adhere to specific limits for certain nutrients, such as saturated fat, sodium, and added sugars. For example, a cereal would need to contain three quarters of an ounce of whole grains and no more than one gram of saturated fat, 230 milligrams of sodium, and 2.5 grams of added sugars per serving for a food manufacturer to use the word "healthy" on the label. The labels are aimed at helping consumers more easily navigate nutrition labels and make better choices at the grocery store. The proposed rule would align the definition of the healthy claim with current nutrition science, the updated nutrition facts label, and the current dietary guidelines for Americans. The FDA said, the agency also is developing a symbol that companies can voluntarily use to label food products that meet federal guidelines for the term healthy. Once finalized, the FDA's new system will quickly and easily communicate nutrition information through tools such as star ratings or traffic light schemes to promote equitable access to nutrition information and healthier choices. The White House said, "The system can also prompt industry to reformulate their products to be healthier." It said by adding more vegetables or whole grains or developing new products to meet the updated definition. The stakes are high. Six in ten American adults have chronic lifestyle-related diseases, often stemming from obesity and poor diet, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC says these diseases are the leading cause of death and disability, and a leading driver in the nation's 4.1 trillion dollars of annual healthcare costs. And the obesity epidemic is not moving in the right direction. Studies show that obesity, especially among children, rose significantly during the pandemic, with the greatest change among children ages five to eleven who gained an average of more than five pounds. Before the pandemic, about thirty-six percent of five to eleven-year-olds were considered overweight or obese. During the pandemic, that increased to forty-five point seven percent. In some Latin American countries, governments have instituted stricter food labeling laws, pushing back against sugary beverages and ultra-processed foods in an effort to escape the obesity epidemic that has overtaken the United States. In Chile, for instance, foods high in added sugar, saturated fats, calories, and added sodium must display black stop signs on the front of their packages. Nothing with black stop signs can be sold or promoted in schools or included in child-targeted television ads. The Biden administration has endorsed the FDA's efforts to crack down on sodium intake, strengthening the agency's announcement last year that it would have food companies and restaurants reduce sodium in the foods they make by about 12 percent over the next two and a half years. In a parallel effort, the administration suggests the FDA reduce Americans' sugar consumption by including potential voluntary targets for food manufacturers' sugar content. New labeling is sure to be controversial among food manufacturers that have sought to capitalize on Americans' interest in more healthful food. 
The FDA's healthy definition can succeed only if it is clear and consistent for manufacturers and understood by consumers. Roberta Wagner, a spokeswoman for the industry organization Consumer Brands Association, said this week. But what constitutes healthy food is a thorny topic among nutrition experts. Would foods high in what many nutrition scientists call good fats, such as those that contain almonds or avocados, be deemed unhealthy? Whereas artificially sweetened fruit snacks or reduced-fat sugary yogurts might be considered healthy? New FDA guidance announced would automatically allow whole fruits and vegetables to bear the claim of healthy, and prepared food products would have to meet criteria for nutrient requirements and percentage limits for added sugars, sodium, and saturated fats. Recent dietary guidelines put an emphasis on eating a plant-based diet, including vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. They maintain a hard line about limiting your intake of salt and saturated fat, but they state simply that cholesterol is not a nutrient of concern. Doing away with the long-standing 300 milligram per day limit. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.